should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Friday. It's December 8th. Just a few more days of this last month of 2017 left, and I cannot, cannot believe it. We made it through almost a year of Donald Trump and uh, all that came with it. So much, so much baggage. Do I look forward to 2018? Uh, Yeah, you know what? Actually, I do. You know why? I look forward to 2018 because it means more, more resistance. It means more partnerships. It means more organizing. And it means all of us, more of us going out and doing something about just all the uh, injustices that we're facing and that we're experiencing in this presidency and his administration. And not to focus the entire year on just Donald Trump, but certainly he has done incredible harm and damage Today is Friday, so that means we're going to play the Commonwealth Club program in John Zipper's week-to-week political roundtable talk. Today, you're in for a treat. We have Lawrence O'Donnell. Enjoy the program. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Here's Commonwealth Club's program with Lawrence O'Donnell. Welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club, a nonpartisan, nonprofit public forum dedicated to airing diverse views on important topics of the day. If the 1968 presidential election had gone as expected, incumbent Lyndon Johnson would have been reelected, putting an end to Richard Nixon's political career. But Johnson chose not to run, and upstart candidate Robert F. Kennedy grabbed the spotlight but was assassinated. When Democratic nominee Hubert Humphrey looked like he was gaining traction, Nixon nonetheless was able to pull off a victory. Lawrence O'Donnell, the host of The Last Word on MSNBC, has been exploring the 1968 election, and he says that election, and what Nixon did to win it, set the tone for Watergate and all kinds of other disruption in the American political scene in ensuing decades. O'Donnell recently came to the Commonwealth Club to discuss the political impact of 1968. He was in conversation with John Diaz, editorial page editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Let's join Lawrence O'Donnell and John Diaz at the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to the uh, Commonwealth Club of California. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and Twitter, and on our YouTube channel. I'm John Diaz, the editorial page editor for the San Francisco Chronicle and your moderator for tonight's program. I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, 
Lawrence O'Donnell is host of The Last Word on MSNBC and author of the new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. For decades, Mr. O'Donnell has been a pioneer in the field of political commentary and entertainment. He joined MSNBC as a political analyst in 1996, having also been an Emmy Award-winning executive producer and writer of that NBC series, The West Wing. Uh, his new book, Playing With Fire, tells the story of a country coming apart at the seams during the 1968 presidential election. To talk about America then and now, please give a warm Commonwealth Club welcome to Lawrence O'Donnell. I know how exciting it must be to be here tonight because you know this is the closest you're gonna get to Rachel Maddow. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. I know how that feels. She's the hardest working person in that business. She deserves to be on top. Uh, this book begins with a, a simple dramatist's question. And, and that's the way I approach uh, everything I write, really, which is, what is the dramatist's question? And in this case, it would be, what if a poet runs for president? That's what happened in 1968. And that decision changed history, changed everything that happened in the 1968 presidential campaign. Senator Eugene McCarthy, Democratic senator from Minnesota, could, as often as not, be caught in his Senate hideaway office, the little room he would have close to the Senate floor where he could wait between votes. He would be found there either reading or writing poetry, writing his own poetry. And he was considered one of the quieter men of the Senate in those days, uh, certainly the least impulsive among them. And so the entire culture of Washington was shocked when he made a decision that no one before him had ever made, a Democratic senator deciding to challenge the sitting president of the United States, a Democrat, in the primaries, primaries that were not supposed to happen. Lyndon Johnson hadn't bothered to even get his name on the ballot in primaries because there weren't supposed to be any Democratic primaries. The primaries were for the Republicans to choose among Richard Nixon and George Romney and Nelson Rockefeller, both liberal Republicans, by the way, those two. And so a drama began when Gene McCarthy did this. Now, he didn't want to. He wanted Bobby Kennedy to run for president. He thought someone should run as the anti-war candidate and put the Vietnam War on the ballot for presidential voters. And he wanted Bobby Kennedy to do it. Bobby Kennedy decided not to do it. And then people who were looking for that peace candidate came to McCarthy and he said, I can't do this, you should get Bobby to do it, they said, well, Bobby's turned it down. He said, well, go ask George McGovern. They went and asked George McGovern, and McGovern said, you should ask McCarthy. And it <laughs> went like that for weeks and weeks at a time, and then finally, Gene McCarthy makes this momentous decision, and he goes to New Hampshire, and he wins, or so I thought, when I was a high school kid in Boston, 
consuming this news because it was just this overwhelming McCarthy celebration. And for me, it was literally decades later that I found out he came in second. He came in second to Lyndon Johnson, but it was treated as a win because he did so well. He shocked the sitting president, and days after that, Bobby Kennedy jumped into the race. And now we had an insurgency on the left side of the Democratic Party with two candidates against the Democratic establishment. Bernie Sanders last year was simply walking the path created by Gene McCarthy, the Democratic insurgency on the left side of the party. Uh, so he, Gene McCarthy in 1968, set a pattern that we've seen recur since then, most recently last time around. Gene McCarthy did not know that that decision to put his name on the ballot in New Hampshire and a few other states, which is all he set out to do, he thought he might run in four states just to make the point. He didn't know that he was playing with fire. He didn't know that he would be at the Democratic Convention in Chicago and using all of his McCarthy uh, hotel rooms as nursing stations and first aid stations for kids who got clean for Gene, who shaved their be beards and their hair, and they came to support him wherever he went in every primary state, and they came to support him in Chicago, and they were beaten savagely by the Chicago police because of their demonstrations that they were conducting there without permits, and Gene McCarthy didn't know he'd be turning all of those hotel rooms into first aid stations. He didn't know what he was igniting with that decision. He didn't know that he was gonna provoke Bobby Kennedy to then jump into the race when he did so well in New Hampshire. And there's so many what ifs that follow uh, the what if Gene McCarthy didn't run. But that is how this drama started. And for me, it's a personal drama. I was in high school and I tell the stories of, of my own view of these things and how, how these events and were, were affecting me and what it felt like uh, to be alive and alert in the 1960s and in 1968 in particular. It's also a work of history with historical research about things that I knew nothing about before I got into this book. Uh, but one of the things I try to convey is something a lot of people in this room uh, were around for and understand, and that is the, the kaleidoscope of chaos of life in America in 1968. Martin Luther King assassinated. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy assassinated. Lyndon Johnson decides to just drop out of the race in a moment that those of us who saw him do it on TV can never forget for the rest of our lives. This chaotic Democratic convention. And then in the end, Richard Nixon colluding with a foreign power to win the election. And this is now documented beyond a reasonable doubt. We've been working on this for decades. The, the evidence has been emerging slowly, but we now have it. The most important final documentation Jack Farrell got for his biography of Richard Nixon, which came out this year. Uh, and that is Bob Haldeman's notes of what Richard Nixon was telling him to pass on to the South Vietnamese government uh, through some secret uh, inter intermediaries they had who were communicating uh, with the South Vietnamese. And the message was, do not join peace talks in Paris. Don't do anything that moves us in any way toward peace because what Richard Nixon needed was for the Vietnam War to be going and going very badly on election day. And he got that through 
collusion, a case that has been proven. The CIA proved it at the time to LBJ. The FBI proved it at the time to LBJ with surveillance uh, that they were conducting, wiretaps that they were conducting. And when LBJ, a week before the election, saw the secret communications that Nixon had with South Vietnam, he called it treason when he saw it. And he tried to stop it. He tried to figure out a way to stop it, and he couldn't. And so he had the South Vietnamese agree to come to Paris uh, to join the talks, and two days later, they pulled out. They said, no, we're not coming. And that was because of Nixon's collusion, Nixon's interference with, Vietnam, with the, the Vietnam peace process and the South Vietnamese government. And so we, we set in cement in 1968 the political divisions that we have now. And th that cement has just been hardening every year since 1968. And we are living with the results of the divisions that were created in 1968, and they are now being pulled to even more extremes in our current politics. Lawrence, there are so many elements uh, of that 1968 election that I know we're gonna wanna get into, but I wanna immediately follow up uh, on, on the Nixon sabotage of the Paris peace talks. Uh, really, a, I thought a particularly riveting part of your, your book, particularly that this wasn't, source said this, this source said that, you had, you had the transcripts of Johnson, including his conversation with Nixon and, and his conversation with Everett Dixon, who was the uh, uh, Republican senator from Illinois. And it was fascinating, particularly that when Johnson talked to Nixon, didn't specifically say that I had the goods on, on you, uh, but kind of danced around the question, and I'll let you tell the story of what Nixon did when he hung up the phone. Yes, so LBJ uh, was, was discovered this when the CIA brought to him what they were finding in, in terms of this collusion. And uh, the, the FBI then was put on the case. They started running surveillance of the South Vietnamese embassy. Uh, they set a, a few more wiretaps than they already had uh, going in, in Washington. And they dug out what was going on. Uh, and we have the audio tapes of LBJ's phone calls about this. Uh, he made several phone calls about it. Uh, one was to Senator Dirksen, Republican friend of his, because he was hoping Dirksen would scare Nixon into stop doing this. Uh, that didn't work, although Dirksen agreed on the phone with LBJ that what he was describing to him was treason. Technically, it was a violation of the Logan Act, not technically treason. The Logan Act says that no private citizen can negotiate on behalf of the United States with a foreign power. Uh, but it, sur it sure felt like treason to LBJ, who was not a lawyer. And, and so uh, that message to Dirksen didn't work. And so then uh, LBJ got a phone call from Nixon uh, after, after Dirksen talked to Nixon. Uh, uh, Nixon then calls LBJ to try to convince him that I'm not doing what you know I'm doing and what the CIA is telling you I'm doing and what the FBI is telling you I'm doing. I'm not doing that. And, uh, and Johnson goes on and on about it and he talks in this very circular way because you can see he's trying to figure out how far he can go with Nixon. He's trying to figure out how many cards he should turn over and there are some he doesn't want to turn over. He doesn't want Nixon to know about what 
intelligence methods they have, although Nixon as vice president, uh, former vice president, can guess uh, pretty much what LBJ would have had in front of him at that point. Uh, and so uh, LBJ is trying to scare Nixon, but he's also being very cautious about exactly what he says to Nixon in this exchange. But LBJ, being a, a rational politician, believes that by the time he finishes this phone call with Nixon, that Nixon is living in terror that the New York Times, the Washington Post, is going to report tomorrow that Nixon is colluding with a foreign power to continue a war. In other words, colluding with a foreign power to make sure more American soldiers are dying on election day. Nixon needed, he believed, more American war dead in order to win on election day. And so LBJ thinks when he hangs up the phone that Nixon is now living in fear that LBJ is going to expose all this. And when Nixon hangs up the phone, he and the Nixon aides around him just burst out laughing at how weak they thought LBJ was on the phone, that LBJ did not threaten Nixon strongly enough or threaten him directly in a way that would have impressed them. They thought LBJ was just the weak one in this exchange, and they literally laughed at him. So President Johnson at that point, this was still a number of days before the election, had the opportunity to make this public, talk to some of his advisors. They made the decision not to. And I guess uh, one of the driving reasons, according to your book, was they were concerned about that the word would get out about the, uh, the, the, the wiretapping that they were doing of ambassadors of foreign countries. Yeah, and it, it comes down, those decisions come down to this phrase that can define everything that politicians choose to do at the highest levels in, in that situation, and that is the good of the country. Walt Rostow, the National Security Advisor, when he found out about it, he urged Lyndon Johnson to immediately expose Nixon to the Washington Post and the New York Times and let them run with it, give them everything we had. Clark Clifford, uh, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, when they spoke to the President about it, they advised him not to reveal any of this. They said, first of all, you'd have to reveal our intelligence sources. We don't want to do that. We have wiretaps at embassies all over town that we don't want people thinking about or knowing about. Uh, secondly, you would have to be believed for this to work. This is a few days before the election. It could easily look like a political move by a Democratic president who's trying to elect the Democrat uh, in, in this election and trying to defeat the Republican. And there's a big question as to why people would believe you or believe this administration if we allowed this information to leak like this or if we just marched out to the podium and made it directly public. It's not clear that we would be believed. And the other part of it that, that was, and this was the part that Nixon could have easily anticipated, and I think Nixon, having been vice president, was able to anticipate every one of these arguments, including the revealing intelligence sources argument. But the other one was this more general good of the country argument, and that is they didn't want the American voter to think that there could possibly be a major party candidate who would do something like this. 
that it would be bad for the country to even think that this was possible, even though they knew it was possible and actually happened. And you have to remember that at that point, impeachment was an inconceivable thing to them. Impeachment was a thing that had happened once before, a uh, hundred years before, and, and it was just a vote in the House, and then the Senate immediately dismissed it, and nothing happened. Uh, and and they, they didn't think impeachment was a real option, in the, especially for presidents in the nuclear age who had come to be regarded as the leader of the free world. And so they were men who believed in the presidency. They believed in it as an institution at a truly exalted level. And they feared the worst case scenario for them was that you put this information out there and Nixon gets elected anyway, and then what happens? Would, would someone want to have him impeached? They believed you could not and should not impeach a president for any reason at that point in time. They, they, none of them would have supported impeaching a president in the middle of a war uh, and with uh, the nuclear codes in his pocket. And so it was this notion that they had about the good of the country that made them suppress that information at that time. A more innocent time for sure. Now people are talking impeachment because the president does have the nuclear... Well, you know, once you try it once, <laughs> there's a whole different feel to it. And so, you know, in... Uh, 1974, impeachment was not just conceivable, it got underway. And we actually were having impeachment hearings uh, in the House of Representatives. We actually got there. And, and so that, that 1974 scenario was utterly inconceivable uh, to those very same people in 1968. And you know, Nixon became paranoid for the rest of his life about being caught in this collusion. And he actually ordered a break-in uh, before Watergate uh, because he got the word that there might be some of the records of his collusion uh, that, that were being held in, at the uh, Brookings Institute. And so he ordered a break-in that did not happen because wiser heads prevailed and they didn't do it. Uh, and so then the next time they wanted to do a break-in, they actually did do it. Uh, at the Watergate, but it was Nixon's big fear that somewhere over there on the Democratic side, somewhere, they had these records, LBJ had these records, and he passed them along to someone. Maybe it's, you know, that office at the DNC in the Watergate. Uh, and so that was driving him into all of this madness in the first place, was this desperate attempt to cover up what really was his greatest crime. Let's get back to that 68 campaign uh, as it's evolving. I mean, one of the things that strikes me as I'm reading your book is remembering how compressed the presidential campaign was back then compared to now, where you have like the, you know, dozens of Republicans on stage, you know, insulting each other, going on for months and months. Uh, after New Hampshire, an awful lot happened. You've made, you, you make the case in the book that if not for the McCarthy um, candidacy that Robert F. Kennedy not only would have likely gotten the nomination, but could have been elected president. Well, I, I don't think uh, Bobby would have run if Gene McCarthy hadn't run. Uh, but once Bobby was in, and given that he won California, he was at that point 
probably best positioned to get the nomination, but it was a very different time. Uh, the, most states did not have primaries. Most of them didn't. And so you could get the nomination without ever running in a primary, as Hubert Humphrey actually did that year, because most of the delegates were up for grabs in the convention hall. You could just go into the convention and get them or line them up ahead of time. Uh, it was a world of what we would call superdelegates in those days, uh, completely uncommitted. They could do whatever they wanted to. And that was true for most of them. And uh, But, you know, they... What Gene McCarthy showed in New Hampshire was just how vulnerable uh, LBJ was. And no one knew that until the votes were counted on election night in, in New Hampshire. And, uh, and Bobby's decision to go in, which, he, which was a very difficult decision, he went back and forth on it many times before Gene McCarthy actually announced. And then he went back and forth on it after Gene McCarthy announced. And he actually wavered a little bit in the days right before announcing his own candidacy. It was very, very hard for him uh, to decide to do it. Uh, he didn't want to look uh, opportunistic. He, he didn't, uh, and most of, uh, the, one of the biggest things about it is he didn't want to fail. A Kennedy had never lost an election, had never lost an election as of 1968, never. You know, Jack Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, Massachusetts Senate seat, Bobby Kennedy, New York Senate seat. Uh, and, and the other big part of it that no one else ever had to worry about that year was Bobby Kennedy thought about very consciously what a Kennedy presidential candidacy might do to the twisted mind of any possible copycat assassin. And so Bobby knew better than anyone that he was playing with fire when he decided to run for president. He, he was very aware of the dramatically increased likelihood of an assassination attempt, at least, by his decision to run for president. In, in fact, uh, you note in your book, he actually said that out loud after the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination that it could have been me. Yeah, he was uh, campaigning in Indiana. He was on an airplane. He lands in Indianapolis, and he's told that Martin Luther King Jr. has been shot and, and has died. And, uh, and later that night, at, at the, when, the, when they had finished doing what they had to do, Bobby then said kind of absentmindedly to an aide who was beside him, that could have been me. And what Bobby did have to do that night was a, he, a scheduled campaign event in Indianapolis <clears throat> in the middle of a, a black neighborhood in Indianapolis. And so... Uh, the police told him he shouldn't go there. They could not guarantee his safety there tonight. Uh, rioting was not yet uh, breaking out anywhere, but later that night, rioting was going to break out in several cities uh, all across the country, and police were aware of this possibility. And so they advised him not to go. Uh, Bobby said he would feel completely safe there. He said that this is a place where I could be tonight with my entire family, and we'd all be safe, and he went. And so the police provided minimal protection because they didn't want to send in a big police force because they thought that might be provocative too. And they, they were concerned literally about the safety of their own officers at that point. And so Bobby gets there and he gets up in the back of a flatbed truck, which was the standard kind of campaign device for that kind of scene in those days. And he discovers that these people don't know 
most of the people here don't know yet. They're holding up their Kennedy signs, they're cheering, they're having a good time. They don't know yet. It falls to him to tell them. And so Bobby Kennedy makes this announcement to this crowd, a completely extemporaneous speech. He quotes poetry uh, and talks deeply and, and touchingly about the loss of his own brother, something he had not publicly done. He had not publicly talked about his brother's assassination in personal terms and what that loss meant to him uh, and, and sharing the loss with this audience tonight of what it meant with them. And he, uh, he spoke briefly, you know, less than 10 minutes. And, uh, and when he finished, uh, there, were, there were no applause. Uh, the crowd was just silent, and the only sound uh, that you could hear was a, a kind of crying, a funereal um, moaning and crying in the audience. And uh, Indianapolis was one of the cities in America that did not riot that night. Lawrence, you, you suggest that uh, Bobby Kennedy could have won the general election as well. I want to get a sense of how you would envision his path to victory, considering Nixon and Humphrey were both plus or minus 43%, George Wallace is 13%. Would Kennedy have drawn, where, where would he have gotten that uh, well, he, he would have been the candidate with enthusiasm. This was one of those elections. Uh, there was zero enthusiasm on either side. Uh, there we, was, we've seen that again. Right. I mean, <laughs> there was zero enthusiasm for Nixon. Uh, here was a guy who was running, you know, for his second time. Richard Nixon was the first sitting vice president in history to lose a presidential election, the first one in history. And then he goes on to run in California for governor two years later, and he loses again. And he appeared to have quit politics in the most bitter public quitting ever, when right here in California, he said at a press conference after he lost the governorship, very bitterly, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore uh, to the press. and. Uh, and unfortunately, they did have Nixon to kick around some more. So he's resurrecting from you know, his own kind of political death and self-declared suicide in a way. Uh, and he's back in 68. And there's no enthusiasm for him. It's just he's the one who ends up uh, with the nomination through a process of elimination. And he always knew that. He always knew it wasn't going to be enthusiasm. It was going to be process of elimination and organization. He really had the best organized campaign. Humphrey was no one's idea of who should be running uh, for president. You know, he looked—he was looked at as the continuation of the LBJ failed war policy, although there were plenty of indicators, uh, certainly in the backstage of it all, that Humphrey was going to find a different way from LBJ. And Bobby Kennedy was not seen as the kind of... Uh, you know, insurgent liberal that Gene McCarthy was regarded as. Gene McCarthy was regarded as a real protest candidate. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was regarded as something else, that yes, he was protesting the administration's current policy, uh, but he was seen as a, a former attorney general. He was seen as someone who you wouldn't be taking a chance on the way you would uh, possibly with, with Gene McCarthy. Uh, and so Bobby was seen uh, much, uh, much more as presidential timber, and the polls indicated that. In the end, Hubert Humphrey, with zero enthusiasm, 
came within 1% of the vote with Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon won with by less than 1% of the vote, and Hubert Humphrey became the second vice president in history to lose a presidential election. To, to sit here now, and after the fact, bet that Bobby Kennedy would have done 1% better than Hubert Humphrey is not a wild bet. But at the same time, let me be the devil's advocate, uh, would Vietnam been a favorable issue for Bobby Kennedy? This was before the Tet Offensive, before the Pentagon Papers, so it's really threshold moments that really changed uh, Americans' view of the war. Would he have been able to ride the Vietnam issue uh, against Nixon? Well, people were voting, what people were voting on on Vietnam was change. The, the Nixon vote, the Nixon approach to Vietnam was, you know, very Trumpian. It was very Trumpian. Uh, it was to basically say nothing. It was whatever LBJ said that day was inadequate. Nixon would come out and say, well, that's not going to work. And then he would never say what would work. And the, there was the idea that uh, Nixon had a secret plan to end the war. And everybody believes, everyone believes Nixon said, I have a secret plan to end the war. He wasn't that stupid. He wasn't at the Trump level uh, of, this <laughs> of this kind of dialogue. The, the phrase, secret plan to end the war, was actually written by a reporter, by a journalist who was analyzing uh, Nixon's talk about the war. And so it was a journalist who actually imposed that notion that Nixon had a, a secret plan to end the war. But Nixon was happy with that. He didn't contest it. He wanted people to think he had a secret plan to end the war. Uh, Humphrey started to surge in the polls and really close the gap with Nixon when he broke with LBJ on the war and said that he would have a bombing halt and that he, 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 that he, he moved distinctly to the left of LBJ on the war. And he went like that. You know, that's how he caught up with, with Nixon. And so Bobby was already there, and Bobby already had tremendous credibility with the labor uh, side of the Democratic Party and all the other sides of the Democratic Party that elected Jack Kennedy when war and peace were, were, not, an, were not issues. This is the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. You can learn more about the Commonwealth Club, its many programs, and how to become part of it at commonwealthclub.org. You can find thousands of our podcasts on iTunes and on Google Play. Today's program features Lawrence O'Donnell and John Diaz. And now, back to our program. Lawrence, you make the case that uh, 68 was transformative, that it really changed American politics. But as I look at the uh, ensuing time, there's been so many uh, twists and turns in American politics. We had Watergate, and then the Watergate babies, the congressmen who, uh, who came in as a result of Watergate. We had the Reagan revolution. We had the Gingrich uh, revolution. We had Clinton. Um, certainly the Trump is, is another turn. What makes you, what, how do you connect the dots between, or what do you see in 1968 that is reflected today? Well, there's a, it, takes a book to answer that question. There are so many. I'm going to give you, <laughs> but I'm going to give you one. I'll just, I, I will just give you one. Uh, and, and that seed is in the first sentence of the book. And the first sentence of the book is Richard Nixon 
meeting Roger Ailes in a makeup chair at the Mike Douglas show. <laughs> Mike Douglas show being the Ellen DeGeneres show of, of the time. And Richard Nixon, former vice president, 1967, gearing up for his 1968 presidential campaign, is sitting in the makeup chair and he says something offhand to Roger Ailes, who's a 27-year-old executive producer uh, of this show. Uh, he's, Nixon says something to him about how silly it is for him to do, be doing one of these entertainment shows when he should be appearing on the political shows like Meet the Press. Roger Ailes listens to this and then lights into Nixon with everything Nixon has ever done wrong on TV, including, of course, his televised debates with Jack Kennedy and how terribly he did in that, and every mistake Nixon's ever made on television throughout his career. He goes on and on about this, and he's kind of angry about it because he believes this is exactly where a politician should be, is on this kind of show, reaching the kind of voter who never pays attention to that political TV. Ailes goes on and on, Nixon sits there silently, and Nixon loves this, just loves it. No one talks to the former vice president like this. No one says these kinds of things to him. And he believes that everything he's hearing from Roger Ailes is correct. And so he pulls Roger Ailes out of show business, into politics, into the Nixon 1968 presidential campaign. Roger Ailes creates a TV campaign for Nixon, the likes of which we've never seen before, very effective for Nixon. Roger Ailes goes on uh, to help elect Ronald Reagan president twice. He goes on to help elect George H.W. Bush president, and then, he creates, in 1996, Fox News. Rupert Murdoch goes to Roger Ailes to create and develop Fox News, which everyone laughed at when it debuted. Who's going to watch Republican TV? Because it was very clear that this former Republican presidential campaign operative was going to create Republican TV. And Roger Ailes creates this network, and we do not know who the President of the United States would be tonight if Roger Ailes had not created and built the Fox News Network into what it is because the Fox News Network carried Donald Trump every day of the presidential campaign, no matter what happened, supported him in every way it possibly could, no matter what happened in that campaign. And when an election is that close, as this last one was, and he squeaks it out in the Electoral College, having come in second, you, you, if, if, if Fox News had taken one day off of Trump support, we could have a different president. But certainly, if Roger Ailes hadn't created and disciplined Fox News into this flawless Republican television machine, I don't believe Donald Trump would be president tonight. You know, the, um, the, the media did a terrible job in covering the Trump campaign. I mean, uh, that's, I could go on about that, but I think we have an agreement there, don't we? Let me ask you, this whole marketing the president, in fact, there was a, a book uh, on the 68 election, specifically on that of you know, the marketing of, uh, of Richard Nixon. The Republicans certainly seemed to learn that lesson, Nixon learned that lesson four years later when he ran for reelection. 
if I'm sure there are a few folks who will, will recall here, his bumper stickers didn't even say Nixon. They just said reelect the president. He didn't debate George McGovern. He stayed above the fray. The Democrats could not have lost that lesson anymore. I mean, McGovern's campaign was a mess, not only the Eagleton. He gave his acceptance speech at 3 in the morning uh, Eastern time. Um, what, what took the Democrats so long to, to see what, what seemed pretty apparent coming out of 1968? Well, you know, you have to remember that uh, parties, uh, their intent is to be uh, smooth, corporate-run organizations that anticipate every bump in the road and flatten out every bump in the road. Uh, but democracy has other ideas sometimes. And so, you know, the, the Republicans uh, never really had an insurgency in their party. They never had some insurgency come up uh, on the right and take over. The first time they had a Republican president, you know, with any kind of challenge to deal with, uh, like LBJ's, was Pat Buchanan uh, going to New Hampshire in 92 to run against George H.W. Bush in Republican primaries. And Pat Buchanan never represented a Gene McCarthy-like threat. He, you know, he did slightly better than expected, but the nomination was never in doubt. And so the Republican Party never had to deal with uh, this kind of insurgency until 2015. That was their first insurgency, the Trump insurgency uh, in that party. They didn't see that coming. Parties are, the party establishment is always going to be the last to know that something new and important is happening inside a party. Just ask Donald Trump, just ask Bernie Sanders, just ask Gene McCarthy. Uh, the parties are always the last to know. And, and that's the way it will always be. And so whenever you see them not reacting with agility to the moment, um, they weren't built uh, to react in an agile way. Let's go to some audience questions here. Uh, if a Democratic administration had done one-tenth of what this administration has done, there would be complete outrage on the part of Republicans. How and why are they getting away with what they are doing? Why are Democrats so bad at outrage? I don't. I think they're pretty. I think they're pretty outraged uh, <laughs> about this. Um, well, look, it's an overwhelming tidal wave of madness, you know, and and so it's. We've never had to deal with anything like this in, in our politics, and so uh, we can't. We certainly can't say uh, the Republicans handled this a lot better when we had a Democratic president like Trump, right? I mean, so there's no there's no model, you know, for for how you fight back on this, uh, and you know. Uh, let's just remember the history uh, of the rhythms of this kind of thing. We have a special prosecutor investigating the president on something that could be gravely serious and certainly has elements in it that could lead to an impeachment process. Okay. When have we had that before? We've had that a, a couple of times before. Uh, but the one that seems to most clearly uh, mirror this is is the Nixon case uh, because it was serious stuff. It involved the the uh, campaign, the reelection campaign, um, and and so Nixon was inaugurated in uh, January uh, of 1973. January of 1973, um, he was driven out of town 18 months later. 
Okay, so on the Nixon calendar, okay, on the Nixon calendar, this is, you know, November of 1973. That's where we are now, right? In November of 1973, there was not one person anywhere in the United States, in any party, anywhere in the world, who believed Richard Nixon was going to be impeached, or who believed it was even remotely possible that Richard Nixon would resign his office. No one believed that because there was no indication that this story, this Watergate break-in, was going to take us that far. There was no hint of it at that point. Okay, so where we sit tonight in this presidency, if you are, you know, eager for impeachment hearings and you're feeling impatient about it, what, you want it to be faster than Nixon? That was stunningly fast. That was incredibly fast. Uh, and I so, think a lot of people do, actually. I know, <laughs> I know. But, you know, so look, uh, so look, I mean, as, as these kind of investigative processes go, we're not quite in the third month of a pregnancy, okay? So just, just adjust your rhythms for that, okay? <laughs> okay. Let me ask you about uh, a phenomenon that we see particularly acute these days, and that's the tribalism in American politics. It plays itself out in so many ways, certainly the Trump candidacy, uh, the reaction to the Roy Moore allegations in the Alabama Senate race. I mean, there are people who regardless of what he did, are continuing to support him. Uh, a lot of folks worry that we, that, that part of the cause of this, or at least per, perpetuator of this, is that people are getting their news, you mentioned Fox News, from sources that corroborate their preconceptions. Also true with MSNBC to uh, some degree as well. Uh, do you think that, that this sort of what, what a political consultant once told me is the iPodization of American politics, where people are just listening to what they want to hear. Is cable news a product of that or a cause of that? Uh, I, I'm not sure whether it's a cause or a, or a result. I, I, I can't say. Uh, but I, there is a big, big, big difference between... Uh, MSNBC, certainly what we're doing and, and what Fox is doing, and that is that we are, thank you, uh, we are fact-based. Uh, you know, there's not a single thing, there's not a single thing. alternative fact-based. Well, you know, it, it's, it, look, the, the new task for American citizenship is the ability to separate fact from fiction, and that is how the population is dividing itself. Now, you can describe it any other way you want. If you want it, you can do that regional, if you want to, if you want to do it regionally, uh, and describe it in any other terms you want. If you want to do all these isolated, you know, exit poll information about, you know, suburban mothers with two and a half years of college, if you want to do all that, you can. But all we're really ultimately talking about is that fundamental ability to separate fact from fiction, and that is what is collapsing in the United States. That ability is collapsing. And that is an, an individual responsibility arrived at through education. And so, uh, you know, here's, here's, just here's an example, 1968 versus 2016, okay? 
George Wallace started to surge in the polls after the Democratic Convention, which was held very late. And the reason they scheduled it for very late is, of course, they were going to be renominating an incumbent president, so they didn't need a long runway to Election Day. It was held, and, and so suddenly it's September, the Democratic Convention's over, and Wallace is surging because of the chaos and the violence that people saw in Chicago. He was surging until the day that he made his public selection of his vice presidential candidate, former Air Force General Curtis LeMay, who was in charge of our bombing strategies, uh, nicknamed Bombs Away LeMay. <laughs> Curtis LeMay uh, is introduced to the press and immediately starts talking like Donald Trump about nuclear weapons. He says, well, you know, if we have them, might as well use them when it makes sense. Uh, he says things like that. He actually gets into describing uh, some of the results they've seen at the nuclear uh, test sites that they've used in the Pacific. Uh, and he says that, you know, the, those rats, those rats, they're all supposed to be completely wiped out. But we found some rats on some of these islands that are fatter than they were before we dropped the bomb there. It's, it's not as bad as people say. He, he actually said... He actually said, you know, if you give me a choice of getting killed by a muddy dagger in the jungles of Vietnam or a nuclear bomb, I think I just might take the nuclear bomb. By the time he finishes speaking at that press conference, the Wallace campaign is collapsing. And the polls show an instantaneous fleeing from George Wallace, the Wallace LeMay ticket, because Americans, which is to say, George Wallace supporters listened to Curtis LeMay and thought he was crazy. <laughs> and they turned against this ticket. And they moved to Nixon because they thought this guy's not crazy. He knows what he's doing. He's not going to get us into a nuclear war. So what has happened? What's happened in that 50 years? What has happened? In the meantime, in that 50 years, you have gotten Time Magazine covers starting 35 years ago about the decline of uh, public education in America and how our educational system is not as good as it should be, not as good as it once was. Uh, you have this general societal agreement that our educational system is failing in so many ways. You can't have that story in the education sections of your newspapers and magazines and think it has nothing to do with the voting outcomes in the political reporting in those same newspapers. You can't be saying that the education system is turning out people who are not as capable as they should be and then not, uh, not apply that to what you see in election results. You can't continue to pretend that the American voter as a group is, some, is somehow the most intellectually exalted group of voters in the world. You don't get to do that. And you sure don't get to do that when you look at 1968 and you look at the Wallace voter reaction to what Curtis LeMay had to say. And you look at the Trump voter reaction 50 years later to what Donald Trump said about nuclear weapons. No negative reaction to that at all. Curtis LeMay, in fact, uh Curtis LeMay famously talked about bombing them back into the Stone Age. Imagine if this guy had Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he considered the possibility of using tactical nuclear weapons in Vietnam.
Let's go to another audience question, which uh, many of them are dealing with uh, someone who's on the 2016 ballot, not 1968, but um, question, what do you think is motivating all the leakers in the White House? Are they leaking out of concern for the country or is it a consequence, a consequence of hating Trump or both? You know, the, the fundamental uh, drive of leaking in Washington is, is literally and simply to prove that you know something. Because that is what is valued in Washington. You know, who was in the room? Were you in the room when this happened? And, and if you were, you are cooler than the person who wasn't in the room. And you then get to prove it by saying something about what happened in the room. So this is, that's, that motivation, which is a fundamentally an egotistical motivation, has always existed in the backroom leaks out of the White House uh, and Congress. And it's, it's literally, at a certain point, just trying to impress the reporters with how important you are, uh, that you know this thing. Uh, then there's a certain amount of it that is just rank unprofessionalism, and the Trump White House is a temple of that. <laughs> it is like, we've never seen anything like it. And then there's a certain amount of backstabbing. You know, you're leaking this bad story about Bannon because you're an enemy of Bannon's within the White House, and you're leaking this bad story about Jared because you're in the White House and you hate Jared. And we've never had a White House with that kind of madness at that level. Uh, it's just, uh, it's the inevitable outcome of egotism, unprofessionalism, and hatreds within the building of each other. We, we talked about how excruciatingly close that 1968 election was in terms of the popular vote. And I remember at the time being a middle school student studying uh, you know, US civics thinking, is it possible that someday we might actually have somebody who loses the popular vote and uh, wins the election? And of course, two of our last three presidents have come in that way, which goes to our audience questions. Do you see the day when we're going to abolish the Electoral College? No, because that abolishing it takes a constitutional amendment, but uh, rendering it irrelevant does not. And California is already part of that movement. Um, all, you need, all you need is a number of states uh, that equal 270 electoral votes to agree that their electors will vote for the winner of the popular vote, no matter who won within their state. And once you do that, the Electoral College becomes irrelevant. At that point, 270 delegates, 270 electors are basically pledged to whoever comes in first in the vote. And that's how you change it. And we have uh, a bunch of states already signed on to this agreement. It only goes into effect once they arrive at that full uh, 270 threshold. Do you think, though, that especially there will be states that end up, the electors will be voting different than their, the, the state voted? The original design from the founding fathers was that these will be the wise men, that we're not going to let individual voters choose the president. We're going we're to let them choose the electors. They can vote for the electors uh, in their state and in, in their, uh, you know, where they vote. But they're going to make their own independent decisions uh, without any regard to what the voter wants, they're going to make the electors going to make their own decisions. Uh, we have completely corrupted the original 
view of what the Electoral College is supposed to be. Now it is locked into these uh, pledges state by state of, of the way they will vote. Uh, and But the truth is they are independent operators when they get there. They can vote any way they want to. Here's a West Wing question. <laughs> Audience member asking, many of us love the West Wing in part because of its liberal bias, but it raises the question, could a creative team with a conservative bent produce something as credible and compelling as the West Wing creative team? No, you can't, you can't do it. No, but it's, you can't do it now. It's impossible to do it now because Trump has ruined drama. And here's, here's how you ruin drama. You remove consequence. Like we all now know that there's a consequence uh, you know, if, if we park our car out there in the no parking spot and come in here and listen to this, we know the consequences, the car won't be there. And so it's a really dramatic decision to park your car out there so that you come in here. Well, if, if you can just do that and walk out and get your car, that stops being a dramatic decision. And so let's just consider for a moment the pilot uh, plot of the West Wing, which Aaron Sorkin wrote uh, alone before he hired any of us writers. Uh, Brad Whitford, Josh, one of our White House staff, has said something on TV in an interview that inf offends a very important group. And the, these people are actually opposed to us anyway. They're not part of our support coalition, but we don't need any more anger out of them. And so the issue of the pilot is, should we fire Josh? Uh, should we force Josh to go out there and do a public apology? Uh, you know, will the president have to do a public apology? What should we do? And in the end, we end up, you know, not apologizing and, and, uh, and we move on. But think of that. that. That's the dramatic stakes of the pilot of a TV drama. That's impossible now. That's utterly impossible that, you know, Kellyanne Conway said something that offends. That's every day. And you don't, you don't apologize for anything. And there's no tension in it. There's no drama in it. There's nothing. And so, you know, I mean, look, one thing that happened in television drama about the White House is that uh, the West Wing got there first brilliantly uh, when Aaron created it. We then did 154 episodes. And we found the drama in reality. By the time these are all on the air, by the time we get to episode five, the audience is gonna be on to us. They're gonna know that nothing happens. They're gonna get it. You know, it's just these guys in neckties mildly disagreeing and then deciding how to proceed. That's it, that's the show. No one throws a punch. There's no baby dying in the emergency room. No one's facing the death penalty. Uh, you know, the cops aren't shooting and chasing anybody. Uh, we are violating every known notion of what is supposed to occur in an hour of television drama. And, and, and I liked it, but now Trump has changed reality. He's, he's, and therefore, you know, you, you, you cannot write a fictional drama set in the present in the White House. I think the only way to go about it now, either as film or television, is to do actual real historical drama about real things uh, that happened in our history long before Trump. Please join me in thanking Lawrence O'Donnell. He's host of The Last Word on MSNBC and author of the new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 election and its transformation of American politics. I'm John Diaz, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California 
the place where you are in the know is adjourned. This has been the Commonwealth Club of California radio program featuring Lawrence O'Donnell and John Diaz. Join us next time for another program from the Commonwealth Club. You can learn more about the club and our events at commonwealthclub.org and on our iPhone app. Find hundreds of our programs on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us in person at the Commonwealth Club of California.